Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of AdvaMed. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Leeshawn Aklog, chairman and CEO of PavMed, a multi-product company focused on bringing a range of innovative treatments to market for patients. An accomplished inventor, Leeshawn also has experienced the operating room, the classroom, and the boardroom, making his insights and contributions to our industry all the more valuable. He was born and spent much of his early life in Ethiopia. He shares a story of coming to America with his family to escape political violence, which has been followed by a remarkable career saving and improving patient lives. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Sean, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks for being here. It's a real honor. You know, I always like to start these off by giving the listener a bit of a window into who the person is behind the CEO title and uh, where you came from and kind of what motivated you to get where you are today. So can we start there and maybe tell me about your journey as a young kid to the U.S. and, and what got you into the med tech space? Sure. I'll, I'll give you the short version of that. So I was born in Ethiopia. East Africa. Two pretty remarkable parents. Both my parents were high achievers. My father was the first cardiologist in Ethiopia. He trained wow. in Beirut, trained in the U.S., came back and and established a very prominent practice uh, over the years. And then my, my mother was a very uh, accomplished and groundbreaking woman herself. She was the youngest of 12. All of her sisters, you know, were married and, you know, were not allowed to finish school. She had brothers who were educated in the West and she became a, um, a professor at the university. She got a master's degree at Harvard in the mid 50s and came back and became a leading figure in, uh, in education, not just in Ethiopia, but around the world. So we both, me and my sisters had a lot of pretty big shoes to fill, but also were raised with a very strong commitment to, to education and to serving others. I came here, I came to the U.S. At, during difficult times in Ethiopia. And for mm. those of you who might be following the news right now, yeah. Ethiopia is going through some very difficult times as well. This is in the late 70s, where there was a murderous, you know, blood-soaked dictator named Mangusta Halamariam, who was terrorizing the country and particularly terrorizing my generation. I was in middle school, and I had cousins who were in college and university who were being, you know, mowed down in the streets and disappeared. And it was a very, very, it was called the Red Terror era in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. It was a very difficult time. And so most my cousins, my family, but others in my generation were looking for a way out. It wasn't always that easy. Fortunately, my father, because as a physician, you sort of end up having some somewhat of a privileged position with regard to how you interact with, with various people, good or bad. And he was able to orchestrate me and my older sister leaving the country and coming to suburban Chicago, a town called wow. Naperville, Illinois, which yep. I know is sort of almost a metropolis today, but back then right. it was a sleepy commuter town with 30,000 people in it. And we both lived with separate families and uh, just basically showed up as students in, in high school and went to the local public schools and then sort of went off to college. So we were very fortunate to have a church in Naperville that sponsored us, to have family, American families that decided to take on these two young Ethiopian kids and treat us as, as family. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're very fortunate and, you know, in many ways, it's a bit of the American dream. What a great story. What You may not know this, Lee Sean. I knew I liked you, but now I know why. Uh, my <laughs> youngest son is uh, Ethiopian. I did not know that, Scott. Yeah, oh, and uh, was, was born in Addis. We've been back two or three times with him. 
a wonderful country and, you know, wonderful people in the country. I've always been struck every time I went back to Ethiopia with, in spite of such challenging circumstances for some, there's a certain level of happiness that just exists inside people in the country of Ethiopia I've always found. And I love the country and I love going back. I, and I've know, got a I know I always liked you, but now I know, but now I know, <laughs> I like, now, now I know why as well. Yeah. You know, one of my uh, colleagues, a co-founder of all our companies and my longtime clinical partner as a surgeon, Brian de Guzman, he has four kids he adopted from Ethiopia. Oh, so, is that right? Uh, wow. Yeah, they're ranging in ages from middle school now to high school. So um, that's, that's incredible. I didn't know that. He has enriched our lives in so many ways. He's now 15 and a ninth grader, and he's not enriching our lives as much as he used to as a 15-year-old. He's a great kid. He's an American teenager. Uh, even though he was born in Ethiopia, he's an American teenager. Now. Exactly. He's, he's been here 13 years now, right? And so he came when he was two. He's fully become American. Whether that's good or bad, I'm not sure, right? But uh, that's who he is now. And so what an interesting life journey for you. And it took you to Harvard, right, for undergrad and medical school. Is that right? Yeah, I was sort of a math geek in high school and, you know, did well in math. I I was going to be a physicist. I actually, mm. you know, those who know anything about high energy physics would know that back in the day before CERN became big, the epicenter of particle physics was a Fermi Laboratories uh, outside Chicago in Batavia, okay. Illinois. And I had the opportunity in high school to spend summers there to work there. I actually got to interact with a future Nobel Prize winner to, uh, who actually ran the laboratory. I, I just think back at how preposterous it was that I sort of landed from Ethiopia a year earlier and was sort of rubbing elbows with with high-powered physicists. So I had basically yeah. decided at that point that I would I was going to be a physicist and I was going to study quarks and particles and exotic things like that. And I was fortunate enough to give, be offered um, you know, a good financial aid package and ended up in Cambridge and, and started studying physics. And then on to medical school and, and to become a surgeon, right? So basically what happened was late in college, I started realizing, and I got a B in quantum mechanics, which was well, you know, probably the first uh, side of, of, of that. My, maybe my career as a, as a future uh, particle physicist was not meant to be. But I also, it, Ethiopia comes into play here as well. I went back one summer, spent time with my dad, my junior, I think it was. Yeah, my, with my dad and his colleagues. You know, there was this whole um, generation of doctors in Ethiopia that had all trained at the American University of Beirut in the 50s. Mm. And yeah. so the top surgeon, the top cardinal, right. everybody was this little cohort of guys, a few women who trained them over a two-year period and dominated Ethiopian medicine for the next 40 years. So I had a chance to meet, you know, spend some time and said, you know what, I, everyone had always told me I I was destined to be a doctor because of my father. And so yeah. I sort of conceded that fact. And, and yeah, and I, went, I had a chance to go to Harvard Medical School. Uh, they were the only ones who actually were willing to give me financial aid because wow. I was a, yeah, I was still a, I wasn't a permanent resident. I had actually at one point given up and decided, mm. well, let me go work on Wall Street for a few years. It was right. the era where Wall Street was hiring physicists okay. because it was when the quant era began and they yeah, were looking right. for people who could like do math and they figured right. they, could, they could teach them the backslapping stuff yeah, yeah, separate from that. And I was all set. I'd given up on medical school. I was going to go to Wall Street, spend a few years, raise, you know, make some money and come back. And at the very end, after I graduated, the summer after I graduated, Harvard picked up the phone and said, you know what, you know, we'll come up with a package to make up for what you did. And, and so I'm obviously internally grateful for that as well. 
So you became a heart surgeon, and if I, you're probably too humble to admit it. You were one of the youngest heart surgeons to join the faculty at Harvard, I believe, if I read that correctly. Someone told right? me that. I guess that, that <laughs> I was young. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was certainly the, the first African-American in a field that was very much not terribly diverse. Yeah, I was, again, just very fortunate at the opportunities. I got to train at Brigham and Women's with uh, you know, Larry Cohn and David Adams and some you know leading very uh, leading uh, legendary people in the field. I got I got a chance to spend a year in Europe, training in heart valve advanced heart valve surgery in London and in Paris with also and sort of legendary folks in the field. So I was very fortunate to have yeah. have those opportunities and then go off and become a surgeon myself and have the privilege of of uh, you know opening people up and trying to fix their hearts. What made you, uh, LeSean, make the change from being a heart surgeon and working on people and saving lives from that perspective and then moving into the medical technology field that you do now, right, as CEO and, and a chairman of a board and so much work that you do in the med tech space? What was that transition? Why did so you So it was that? a long transition. It actually started, the seeds of it started when I was a resident. And it became clear when I was a resident that I was very much enamored by technology and medicine. This is one yeah. of the reasons I did cardiac surgery. I mean, it was, it, it was, it's really one of the most technologically intensive specialties we have with all the tools and a heart lung machine and, and lots, of, lots of complex technology that goes into that. And I found myself gravitating towards innovation, towards new technology. It was always kind of in my blood. I, alien, I, I received the wrath of many, uh, not many, but several Harvard professors sort of in, in the operating room as a bright-eyed yeah. medical student saying, why do you do it that way? Isn't yeah. there a better way to do it? Have you ever yeah. thought about doing it through a small incision? I'd get these like glare looks like I do it that way because Dr. So-and-so taught me how to do it that way 40 <laughs> right. years ago. So right. I had that kind of, you know, somewhat obnoxious young surgeon, budding surgeon bug for innovation and also for technology. So that right. started from the beginning. And even throughout my practice, I was very, very active in working with, you know, many AdvoMed companies, you know, large right. companies, Medtronic right. and St. Jude at the time, and Guidant at the time, uh, serving on advisory boards, helping develop new technologies, as well as many small startups. And the, how it transitioned to us actually to kind of saying, well, maybe I'll actually start doing this myself or with my part, my, me and my partner, was that I'd gotten involved in the treatment of pulmonary embolism, uh, okay. which are blood clots to the lung. And I'd had right. a cardiologist who said, hey, I'd like to send you patients to do open surgery on patients who have blood clots to their lungs. And I was a first year attending and now at Brigham, I was at Harvard, I was, you know, a case is a case, you want to do surgery. So I said, sure. And that was a case that every surgeon wanted to avoid because mm. usually they're sending you people who are really, you know, have one foot, they're near dead and you're trying right. to save them. And he had agreed he was going to send patients at an earlier stage so we could do surgery before yeah. the, before things, before the die was cast. And so I got myself very early in my career doing lots of these cases, dozens of cases that were typically the hospital would do one a year. And we started getting good outcomes from it and published on it in circulation and started you know, going around the world giving talks about the surgery. But every time I would do it, it'd be one o'clock in the morning and you'd have somebody who was helicoptered in and the resident would sort of get everything set up and you, you're on the heart lung machine, you're bypassing the entire circulation. And the operation at that point consisted of you open the artery to the lungs, you grab a forcep, you pluck out a clot, you close it up, and you're done. And right. it just seemed like an incredibly invasive, long run for a short slide. Right. And so I started thinking about ways to take the endovascular approaches that had started to come along in other areas, dent grafts, 
aortic stent grafts were just coming along and said, look, there's got to be a better, there's got to be an endovascular way we can remove these large blood clots different than typical small clots. There's a lot of thrombectomy right. devices out there that were doing smaller clots. And I started, you know, filing some IP and was very naively kind of wandering the streets, seeing who might be interested in it, talk to some companies, just with no really understanding of, of how to navigate this, but at least started getting the creative juices flowing. And then ultimately I connected with two, with my clinical partner, as well as another longtime veteran of the med tech industry, a guy named Mike Lennon, who was at Guidant. I got to know when he was at Guidant. And we created a, he came to us and said, I have a business model that is focused on capital efficiency, speed to market. He had just spent time at Excellent, which at the time was the largest yeah. uh, contract manufacturer. And so we, he asked us if we would join him and as partners. We were still practicing heart surgery. We were, we were in Arizona at the time, and we founded an entity called Pavilion Holdings Group, where we said we would take this business model that Mike handed to us and start advancing our own innovations and potentially outside innovations along this model. And the first thing we stumbled on was this idea on how to do pulmonary embolism procedures endovascularly. And we created a company called Vortex Medical, got it from PowerPoint to first in human in 18 months at Brigham, uh, raised a sipped on capital, very small amount of capital along the way, got some independent reps to to sell it. We were doing a couple of million in revenue and sold that to Angel Dynamics in uh, 2012. So okay. that was kind of at the point at which we just sort of dove in full, full, you know, but with both feet and said, oh, this is great. And there's a bit of a long answer, but I'm going to get to one of the points you made about sort of transitioning from the satisfaction, professional satisfaction of, of doing surgery and saving right. lives. You know, what I realized during the Vortex years is that you can have, and this is really important for our whole industry, right? Right. Which is that the impact, the opportunity to have an impact on lives, saving lives or improving lives through technology is as great as yeah. the, being the actual person to do it. And I recall a case that I did with one of, that I was proctoring in at the University of Maryland, a young woman who avoided her fourth chest opening because they were able to use our device to suck mm. the clot out of her heart instead of wow. having to open her chest for the first time. And I was going to go to dinner with my friend who did the case, who was a longtime colleague of mine, and he went to go, he said, oh, I got to go talk to the patient. He went to go talk to the patient's family. And they both walked out together and because he had told him, he goes, oh, you know, my friend who invented this thing right. uh, is with me. And he insisted on coming and talking to me and just sort of, you know, giving, you know, thanking me for, yeah. you know, giving his his wife the opportunity to have a treatment that did not require the level of invasiveness. So it was that point I realized, like, you know what, you can actually have a, as powerful an impact and maybe even more powerful numerically by doing things uh, on the industry side. That's kind of when the light bulb went off. That's an incredible story. And it's interesting, you have your own personal story, but as I've talked to CEOs throughout our industry, it's the life-saving, life-changing aspect of our business that continues to motivate everybody to work in this space. I was talking to one CEO yesterday who said, who started in the IT space and was intrigued by the innovation in the IT space for a very large company. And at some point realized that technology is fascinating, but it doesn't change lives the way medical technology does. And that was the leap for her, right? She's like, I want to take all these learnings and then take it over and change people's lives. And you hear that over and over from CEOs in our space, that, that that's really the motivating factor, right? It really is. It's a, it's a unique part of our industry. Like we say, we're not selling widgets. We're not selling yeah. 
you know, apps with 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 birds running around on the app. I mean, we're we're actually having we're actually having a real impact on on lives, and it's one of the reasons why it's great to be part of this industry. But we it gives us actually an advantage. I'll just give you yeah. one quick. You remind me of one quick anecdote that came up in one of our leadership team meetings today, where you know we're building up a digital health. We have a digital health subsidiary, and we're getting right. really deep and active in the digital health space. And we have a very accomplished chief technology officer who we just recently hired out of the Bay Area, and we're talking about the plan to expand her team to include people, you know, tech, technical folks with expertise in machine learning and AI. As you might imagine, you know, that's obviously everyone's doing machine learning and AI. Those folks are in high demand. Right. And one of the things she pointed out to me this morning was that she goes, you know, although they're in high demand, people want to work. They like the idea of working in a space, in an industry, on products that are going to have impact on people's lives and not making cars drive autonomously or something yeah, like that. Exactly. And so it actually, she said, she goes, I'm actually think we'll be fine. And she said, I think we'll be able to fill up this team fine because we have an advantage over other companies that are trying to recruit these folks. Yeah, there's a mission to what we do. There's a purpose to what we do that transcends so many other areas of business. I think that's what makes us so unique. Let's transition to your current company, PavMed, and talk about that company a little bit and where you are in your journey there, Lee Sean. Right. So PadMed was really the way I look at it is PadMed started as the second chapter in this little this enterprise I had mentioned to you. So under the pavilion heading, we created four companies, single product, you know, a, a little dab of three three million of capital on the market, either commercializing it ourselves or selling it to another company. After we sold Vortex, we realized that we were going to grow this enterprise. We had to so the second chapter had to be somewhat different. And so what we decided, what we embarked on was a path where we said we're not going to do single product companies anymore. We're going to do a single entity that has a, that's a long-term vehicle that's undifferentiated, that's right. agnostic to specialty, which is all right. somewhat odd and contrarian. You'll agree from knowing our industry to say we're not going to go out and be a cardiac company or an ortho company. We're going to be a value innovation-driven company that will look at and will innovate across uh, the spectrum of clinical conditions and even, even commercial call points. So we created PavMed, uh, we seeded it with five of our own innovations that we had been working on, but we created it in a way that we felt would be streamlined with regard to our ability to bring in outside yeah. technologies through partnerships with academic medical centers and physician innovators and others, right? Yeah. And then just to be you know extra contrarian, we said, we're going to go to the public markets at a much earlier stage that would be normal. I got connected to a couple of Wall Street veterans who were very much focused on um, early stage companies accessing the, mar the public markets. And so we did that. So we basically decided we would yeah. raise capital within. We did a small IPO a couple of years after we found PadMed and we've raised a couple hundred million dollars over the over the years and have, have access to capital to the capital. The whole aspect of this, I think, is relevant to kind of thinking about our industry as a whole. As I said, we decided we would seek to continue to feed this engine, which has now grown substantially over the years, by not just internal innovation, but ac but accessing external innovations that are typically at academic centers or yeah, physician right. innovators, right? right? And one of the things that's unique about medtech or different about medtech compared to, let's say, pharma, is that the path for you know some molecule and some you know fancy laboratory somewhere working its way out and ending up either as an early stage company or in, you know with a larger stage company that pathway is pretty well scripted you know, there are some good 
good molecule out there that that has a prospect for being a therapeutic, yeah. it'll work its way through. That's yeah. not the case for technology. I mean, there is a lot of technology that is trapped in academic medical centers by physician innovators that are just, you know, they, they move along, they do some animal work, they get through accelerators and, you know, potentially have some support from the institution, but they're just right. not getting out. And so we decided we would build this in order to do that. And what we've done in the years is we've done four We've acquired or licensed technology across a broad spectrum in four areas from four different entities. Uh, the poster child for that is Lucid Diagnostics, our subsidiary, which just went public a couple, a couple of weeks ago uh, right. and raised capital publicly in the diagnostic space. It was our, yeah. our foray into the diagnostic space for detection of esophageal precancer yeah. in patients who are at risk who have gastroesophageal reflux disease. We're in digital health. We're in, in a variety of other areas. And those relationships with those academic centers or their physician innovators have been creative. They've been sort of out of the box in terms of how we've done it. And they've been win-wins, uh, yeah. very different than the standard model. Interested in the phrase you use that a lot of technologies are trapped in academic centers in the area that we work in, but they're not in the biopharma space so much. It, what is it that causes those technologies to be trapped? Is it something structural about our industry? Is it something structural about the academic industry, or is it just the uncertainty in, of what's going to happen with the technology? I think it's maybe a bit of all three, but I would okay. put our the industry last. I think it's structurally different, right? A molecule is a molecule. Yeah. You do the you know, it's pretty straightforward on how you get that through. You know, in device techno medical technology innovation happens in the trenches, right? It's somebody. Yeah, I'm, I'm the poster child for that. It's someone who's doing a particular type of surgery and says, wow, you know, maybe there's a better way to do this less invasively that could be that could be helpful right. to patients. Some of it comes out of the basic science lab and some of it is is certainly trans, true translational medicine like the molecular diagnostic assay we market. But a lot of it is more, you know, kind of amorphous innovation in the trenches. And yes, the academic medical centers are not well equipped to handle that. They're very much kind of royalty focused yeah. PTOs yeah. that just you yeah. know know how to get the molecule out of there, and they yeah. some are more advanced than others. Some have you know you know big elaborate innovation centers with accelerators and and accessing, but even those just their yield is not what you would need it to be. So I think it gets to the question of I'm not sure that the industry is really at fault, but it does you know we have a as an industry we do have an interest and making sure that these innovations are not trapped and there's a right. more streamlined path. And maybe there are things that we could do as an industry that we're not doing to facilitate and sort of unclog some of that pipeline. Sometimes I wonder, having worked in a bio space a little while, if the gold at the end of the rainbow is just a little bit greater over in that space too. If, if to right. some degree, that's why things don't get trapped over there because they know at the end of the day, the reward may be much higher than the reward in the medical technology space. And that's the way investors might think about academic centers, too, in the biopharma space versus in the med tech space. Do you think there's anything to that? Correct. Oh, yeah. No, I think yeah. you hit on one of the issues. Which is there's just more and easier capital to be had to be applied to to biopharma innovations. And med tech's been a bit of a, a bit of an ugly duckling in that regard, yeah. right? That you're right. It's higher rewards, certainly. We might argue that at, at some certain aspects or certain sectors within our right. Within, you know, certainly in diagnostics and in digital health, there have been some pretty good, pretty good exits uh, there. But it's also higher risk. That's maybe the message we need to get across, which is that for every molecule that gets out of phase one or phase two, you know, the number it's not just higher risk. It is a hard binary risk that if the p value on on your yeah. phase three study is 0.08 
you're in trouble. If it if it's 0.04, you've you, know, you have a billion dollar product. I mean, it's yeah, it's, that's it's, right. it's so yeah. For some reason, you know, either they're communicating it differently, or somehow the investor community sort of gets that and understands that risk reward. And maybe we need to do. You know, there are things we could do to to improve on that. But I think I think you're right. Lack of capital is part of the problem. More difficult access to capital is part of the problem on that. It's a fascinating thing. We've heard so many of our CEOs talk about the importance of the entire medtech ecosystem, right? From the earliest stage, as you mentioned, in the academic center and the concept stage, through the regulatory process, and then into the payment space as well. And LaShawn, we've worked on this a little bit as well, but talk about that end of it, the payment side. We've we've talked about MSIT and whether that was the perfect solution or a step in the right, right. direction. But it still feels like also in that space, more clarity on the payer side of medical technology innovation could give us a little more certainty on how we invest on the front end. Do you agree yeah, with that? I completely agree with that. I mean, there are risks along the way. There's technology risk, there's IP risk, there's right. regulatory risk. None of those systems are perfect. You know, the way we do IP is not perfect, the the way we handle regulatory. But, you know, as much as we, you know, the FDA has gotten a lot better on that, as you know, thanks yeah, to right. the, this organization. We can get through, there's predictability, you know, generally pretty good predictability on that. And, and predictability is the key to being able to raise capital. The one area where things are very difficult, if you're not a big sort of large behemoth company, it's very difficult to manage reimbursement risk. I would definitely put that at the top, I, I, this, you'll appreciate this from your, your days on, on the Hill, but I always get a chuckle every time I read about the objection to the prescription to Medicare negotiating prescription. Yeah, D, and yeah. I'm, like, I'm thinking like, OK, fine, there, there are plenty of arguments pro and con, and I, right. I can understand the con arguments, but that's what we deal with every day. We got payment for our diagnostic for Medicare. We dealt with yeah. the Medicare contractors. Sure, the contractors have their own, but but at the end of the day, we have to work within this current system to secure reimbursement. And MSIT and uh, structures a lot along that line where technologies, we have a breakthrough technology in Lucid, ESOGARD, the molecular diagnostic assay, yeah. that is ultimately going to be dependent on the breakthrough designation resulting in some predictability during a period of time when we're able to collect post-market data to demonstrate the value in various populations and including the Medicare population. And it's all that's what it comes down to, is it comes down to predictability. Right, uh, right now, you could end up you know, waiting 18 months for a draft LCD like we're doing on one of our assays, you know, or things can move quickly. And again, if you have, um, you know, if you're a larger company, you could absorb that predictability. Smaller companies, it can be existential, frankly. Yeah, that's and right. it can be the difference between getting a life-saving innovative technology into the hands of physicians for patients and not. It's hard to find the example of a life-saving biotech pharma product that didn't get immediate coverage and Correct. broad immediate coverage, right? Correct. And a message like that sends a strong message to an investor, right, of the predictability on the risk that they made, right? And if we don't have that certainty on our end, it just continues to make it more challenging, in my opinion. We obviously agree on this. We really need to fix that. And I think it's the number one. If there's one thing we need to fix in the life cycle of getting an innovation out of the, you know, innovators and into the hands of physicians, there's one thing we need to fix is how yeah. we do how yeah. we do reimbursement. I think that's the highest risk area right now. Let me transition a little bit then to policy and, and politics. I don't want to get into a conversation about politics, Lee Sean, because we've had a few over beers. That yeah, that's, that's regardless of what you say, you will lose half the audience. That's what exactly. we've learned so in we'll, recent we'll, years. We'll right? so, <laughs> so we will not talk about parties or, or specific individuals. Uh, 
But in making the case, talk about how important it is, right, to have access to policymakers in order to make the case as to how we need to shape the ecosystem to have good outcomes for patients. Oftentimes, people don't really maybe understand the benefit of that dialogue. And it's challenging, right? But it's important to have, regardless of party. You know, I think what I'll start answering a question about a little bit about what I've learned about Advent over the, yeah. you know, because this is basically one and the same with my recent experience about of getting more involved in Advent and what it means to be an advocacy organization on behalf of an right. industry. So I remember Advent when I was a resident. I think Mike Masalam was the uh, was the head at the time. I think where for us Advent was can the companies pay for the dinner that. I'm entitled to because I've been working 100 hours yeah, a week and I've right, got a rep. Right, right. I've got a rep who's taking me out right. for a steak dinner, right? That was yeah. that's all I really do about after yeah. years. And I've been it's been amazing over the last couple of years of getting more involved and now being on the board for me to see lobbying and advocacy just sort of gener- generically to the average person is perceived as being maybe for good reason for other sectors and other right, industries. Right. I don't know, but perceived as being a bit of a, a bit of a dirty game, a bit of a right. sort of, we're going to watch out for our interests at, at the expense potentially of, of others. And you know, maybe this is the same aspect of we're in an industry that is doing good. And ultimately, yes, right. it's a business. We're looking, you know, people need to make money and they, there needs to be a profit underlying it, but maybe it's the core of our business. But I've been amazed at how, not only how important the, the advocacy work is and the policy, you know, having access to policymakers and to legislators to advance it, but how that work is really driven by the same fundamental yeah. core mission of allowing us to be in a position to be that's ultimately in the best interest of our ultimate clients, which are patients. Right. I didn't expect that. I really am I'm quite amazed at how coherent that effort is and, and how well it aligns with that. So you asked about getting in touch with, you know, having access to policymakers. What we do is complicated. You know, these right. diseases are yeah. complicated. I might even say more complicated than on the biopharma side where, yes, the, the chemistry and the biology of the of the specific therapeutic may be complicated. The disease might be complicated. But at the end of the day, you're just administering a pill yeah. or you're administering, you're administering some, right. some IV or something. Right. You know, I think people for people to understand the implications of policy changes on the work that we do and how it can help or hinder our ability to take innovations and, and advance them into clinical use for the benefit of patients. It, it's a difficult thing to be, it's not easy yeah. to explain that. I'm just, I'm t- obviously you know that, but I'm just saying that for the broader audience. So yeah. having access and having the ability to explain to folks, you know, what a medical device tax sounds great. It's another way to raise money, you know, and, right. and fine, you know, but how, what the actual impact of that is going to, what would have been, or maybe was during when it was in play and the successful effort to eliminate that. And, you know, well, obviously we're doing that with MSIT. We're doing that on, on a variety of other, a variety of other fronts. So I couldn't be more impressed and happy and to be a part of an organization that, that, that just seems to do that right. So. I appreciate you saying that. And, and we're grateful for you taking time to do it with us because, it's one thing for me to go in and tell the story of medtech, even to tell the story of patients, right? It's one thing for me to tell that story and my team to tell it. It's different when you come in and sit down with a member of Congress or a regulator or the president or the secretary of HHS, and you give them an understanding of what it took from your first idea until approval to get that product to a patient. And, you know, the other thing I've found, Lee Sean, is so often a member of Congress or a politician might not understand it until they've experienced it, until they've experienced the technology 
they or a family member. And all of a sudden, then the light goes on. Oh, right. And they really want to dig into it. And when you hit that moment, it can be transformative in policy outcomes. And again, there are solutions that are fiscally responsible, that make sense, that work, but that are well-informed. You know, the the, the issue is having well-informed policies that are really based on the substance of of the details and the nuances of what we do every day. And I think, you know, we have a really good operation in getting that across. Let me come back to one thing you said early on in the uh, conversation, and I'll, I'll have two more questions for you. But you mentioned early on when you were a young heart surgeon that diversity in that space wasn't as great as it is today. That's been an important issue, not I'm sure for you, Lee Sean, but for all of us in recent years, right? How can we increase diversity in all aspects of life, but particularly in our space, right? In the med tech space, um, what have you seen? How have you seen that improve over the years and where else do we need to go? I'll give you a quick story, and then I'll, I'll tell you. I think we have seen improvements, and um, yeah. and what that is, and where we would go. So you, back that anecdote that I mentioned to you. So yeah, I mean, I was always, you know, it was a male-dominated field, but I was in almost every scenario was the only my minority person in the room, typically. And it's it's interesting. Right, right around the time I started, a couple of colleagues decided to form the Black Cardiothoracic Surgeons Association within a sort of, you know, a group of Black Cardiothoracic Surgeons. And the most amazing thing is the first time we had a meeting, we all looked around. I was like, wait a second. I didn't know there were that many. I didn't realize there were that many of us because we had all had kind of plotted through the system, right. you know, thinking that we were. And it was not sufficient, but getting everybody in a room. So, you know, there's certainly been progress made. I would say the progress in medicine and in the industry, not all, not necessarily the same, has been greater on gender than in with yeah. uh, regard to ethnicity. That I mean, cardiac surgery is still a fairly male-dominated specialty, but that's changing. There are very few remain even within surgery, you know, that are sort of male special. You know, always been right. considered male specialties. But we're not. We haven't made a lot of progress on diversity at the you know underrepresented minority level. I think what we have made, the progress that we've made, is not necessarily in the numbers. Although there's been some. I don't mean to say there hasn't been any. Yeah. There's been some. The progress, absolutely clear-cut progress that's been made, has been in the conversation and the fact that we talk about it. And it's front and center, and that I think um, you remember when you you wrote the letter after the George Floyd summer and right. sort of this right. whole, you know, sort of ra- racial reckoning that was going on and how absolutely amazed I was <laughs> that yeah. corporate entities and corporate, you know, trade associations were actually talking about these issues in a way that that we have never talked about before. Yeah. So that's yeah. the most important thing is that the dialogue is there, we're talking about it, but now we need to sort of translate that into, into yeah. actual results. And I'm sure you, hopefully you've bragged about this on other, on other podcasts, but again, another thing that I have found, you know, very impressive is the efforts that Advomet has taken in this regard. We have a diversity and inclusion uh, subcommittee of the board. We have a team, we have CEO group, you know, Jen and, and Martha and others are, have been leading the charge on that. And, you know, we've, We've made the assessments as to how we're doing, and we knew it's clear that we could do better. I'll, I'll move on for this. But the one thing that struck me that I hadn't thought about before, which I like about the way we're couching this initiative, is not is that our is that the industry should reflect the patients that yeah. we're taking care of, which is a little right. different twist than let's say right. some other, I don't know, some other Silicon Valley company or something where that's not yeah. really as, although there's certain aspects of that as well. And I think that's a real anchor to this effort, right? The, right? the whole point is to have, because by doing so, we're going to do right by those patients yeah. because we'll know, we'll, we'll have, you know, 
better understanding of their experiences by having a more diverse and inclusive workforce. Yeah, it's uh, I've said it this way before. Not only is it the right thing to do morally and ethically, but it's the right thing to do from a business standpoint, too. Right. Yeah. And when all three of those align, you're set to make progress. And I think that's what we're trying to really continue to press on. And we have to keep doing it because as you and I've talked about it, I tend to get a little more frustrated with conversations that don't don't end, right? I'm kind of anxious to see what's the progress. Let's get on with the work, right? But it's good to hear you say the importance of those conversations and continuing being important as well. And so I that's encouraging. Yeah, you can't get to the results unless you're actually talking about the same thing and you're talking right. about it. Then, then, yeah, then you don't, you don't want to be talking endlessly about it. It's like, what are we going to yeah. do? How are we going to get that? What are the metrics? What are we going to yeah. do? Why is it beneficial? You know, the one person I should have mentioned was Kevin Lobo because yeah, Kevin. Kevin was the chair of the inaugural chair when I joined. Right. And as you know, as a, you know, obviously, you know, but hopefully others know that he made it front and center for his tenure as chair. And I remember hearing one of his talks very early on about exactly what you said, which is that right. this is good for business. Let me show you how in yeah. my own business, my multi, you know, my large med tech corporation, how we did this and how it's actually had a positive impact yeah. on our bottom line, not just because it's socially the right thing to do. Well, I'm excited about the progress we're making and, and we're committed to continuing that. Let me close with this question because there are a lot of uh, younger executives who listen to this podcast and and a lot of small company executives as well who might want to follow your path or they've been inspired by your story today. If you could boil down in just a couple of minutes, some advice that you would give those who are coming out of Harvard or they're surgeons right now and they're thinking about getting into this space, what advice would you give the younger generation about following in your footsteps? It's a tough question. I think I would, you know, start by saying focus on the right things on, you know, you know, always be grounded in what we've talked about repeatedly during the the, the podcast, which is focusing on the patience and and the importance and the value of what you're accomplishing. So that's number one. The second is to really understand and become a student of the industry and the processes. Really, Mm. you know, get to know, talk, call people like me who kind of did it and made all the, you know, others who've made all the mistakes, you know, along the way and entered this with some naivete. But the quicker an innovator or someone who aspires to to lead in this this field can really understand the nitty-gritty of what we talked about. What does it take to actually advance the technology? The, what does the R&D phase look like? I've reviewed, you know, helped to sort of advise budding entrepreneurs and realized that they did a, an entire body of work without a design history file so that all of that work is going to have to ultimately be repeated. So just right. getting that, understanding IP, understanding reimbursement, understanding all of that entire trajectory along the way and becoming a student of that is, is really important. And then, it, you know what, then it boils down to, I guess, three things, just sort of grit, perseverance, hard work, but building a team. I mean, that's, you know, the, we certainly, you know, identifying people who are going to be alongside you along the way through ups and downs and, you know, right. multiple times where you end up staring in the abyss, which we've done. Yeah. And then it comes down to capital and just understanding how the capital infrastructure works and how to raise capital in a way that that will get you to there. Because without capital, you could have the greatest idea. It could be life-saving. It could have a big right. impact. You could have a great team. And that's why, you know, why we're so fortunate to PadMed now that we're in a position where we've kind of gotten over the hump on that and can can yeah. do the things that we think we need to do and want to do along the way. Well, that's great advice uh, for everyone who's listening and for me as well. So thanks for joining us today, talking with us about your career journey and your advice for others. It's been 
I've enjoyed it. And I'm sure everyone who's uh, listening to this will enjoy it as well. So yeah. thanks for joining us. Real pleasure, Scott. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right. Good. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of MedTech POV. For more information and to subscribe to our podcast, go to advamed.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to your favorite streaming platform. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of MedTech POV.